0: I didn't know any better, I would think that our worship pastors are excited about something and they have just done an amazing job. A few years ago, our church went on a, a hiring blitz for a lot of younger leaders and pastors. And uh, at that time, the hair got longer uh, and the uh, hairdos got weirder and we had some man buns come on staff and things like that. But these I call them kids because they're the same age as my adult children. Man, are they incredibly gifted, and what a powerful time of worship we have had here today on this resurrection weekend or Sunday, uh, Easter here. Now, I got to tell you, um, it's obviously a little bit different this year because we're uh, doing Easter exclusively online. Uh, There's just a very, very small group of people here, mainly uh, those that have been a part of making the service happen. And, uh, and so it's a little bit different for us. But I, I can't thank you enough for joining us online uh, on this Easter weekend. You know, it was October of 1918, uh, about 102 years ago, that our culture here in America experienced something very similar to what we're experiencing right now. Uh, during that time world war one had been in force for about four years it was just about ready to be over but as soldiers were coming back from the front they brought this virus with them that would eventually be called the spanish flu and the spanish flu was this uh, awful awful virus that would eventually infect about a third of our country and then uh, have a death rate of about three percent sound familiar And uh, and the Spanish flu is very, very serious, about 100 years ago. And here's what's important about that, is that during the Spanish flu, it eventually got so bad that the entire nation shut down and went into quarantine. Every family did. They shut uh, entertainment down. They, They shut eating places down. They shut politics down. Back then, it wasn't considered an essential service. And they shut down all sports Uh, the NFL, arguably the greatest sports franchise ever, had not even come into being yet, but it was delayed because of the Spanish flu. And even more importantly, they shut churches down back then. They needed to. Church was such the lifeblood of the community, always has been, and and it was spreading this flu so dramatically that they stopped holding services. And everybody stayed in their home for about four to eight weeks, and it did the effect that they were hoping for, it mitigated the spread of this disease, the Spanish flu, and eventually they got over it. As I was reading about that and as I've thought about that, I thought, what an incredibly blessed time we live in now. This, too, is going to pass, uh, but to live in a culture now, not just with all of our medical advances and, and, and all of the comforts that we have today, we can call, call DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever and get food sent right to our home, and and, and even as we quarantine We can come into your living room with all of our technology and celebrate Easter. I know it's not ideal, but boy, what an amazing thing God has given us to be able to do that. So all that to say thank you for joining us here on Easter weekend, and and hopefully you've been encouraged so far. We're going to encourage you right now from the Bible, from God's Word. And so I do something all the time before I ever open up God's book and and talk about his truth. I pray. So would you all bow with me right now and let's pray on this wonderful day. Our gracious, merciful, heavenly Father, we thank you for this time of year, for this day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there are all different kinds of people dialing into us right now. There's those that are just so convinced of this resurrection, and they could be like the virtual choir we had, just lifting arms and praise, just belting out the songs and so excited about Jesus and His resurrection. Then there might be those of us, Lord, who believe it but aren't really sure what difference it might make to our lives. And then Lord, there's those of us who really don't get it and aren't really convinced that one, anything happened, and two, that it was much of a game changer. So God, I pray that as we talk very candidly and openly about that now, that Lord, you'd minister to us each where we're at and speak to our minds and hearts. And uh, Lord, make, make us glad that we decided to tune in here today on this very special weekend and, and, and listen and engage. And that's my prayer. Meet us, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. So I need to ask you, have you ever asked the question, because I think I know the answer to this, what if? (laughs) Have you ever asked what if? It's almost dangerous that I would uh, pose that before you because I have spent way too much of my life, I'm 56 years old right now, asking the question what if? In fact, I'm almost neurotic on that level. I can remember moving when I was in second grade to my eventual hometown of Chagrin Falls, Ohio, and I can still remember in second grade when I was moving to Chagrin, starting that what-if string. I I would say, well, what if I don't make any friends, and what if I don't like the new town, and what if I get beat up, and what if I don't like school? All these what-ifs hit me. And then I entered junior high, and I continued that what-if game. You know, what, what if the girls don't like me? What if I don't grow because I was small then? <laughs> and, 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 and again, what if this, what if that? And then I entered high school, and, and I'm just continuing on with this what-if motif of my life. Some of you can relate. It got so bad that my father, who's always had a very sarcastic and biting sense of humor, gave me a plaque one year for Christmas, when I was in high school, and I remember opening it up under the tree, the whole family's watching, and I opened up the plaque, and my dad was smiling at me, and the plaque said, "Don't just sit there, worry." <laughs> it was kind of like my dad's way of saying, "Man, you got to chill out, kid. You worry so much." And the seedbed of my worry were all these "what-if questions. Then I became a Christian. When I was 18 years old. And I kind of assumed that, you know, now that I'm reading the Bible and I read things like, you know, when Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry for itself and, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be given to you. All these great promises that my what ifs would dissipate. Hardly. I, I now am a Christian what if and, and so I, I spend that time even now as a pastor of this wonderful church. You know, you know, what if this and what if that? And what if a staff person does this? And, and, and I play all these what-if games, and they're hardly ever healthy to my soul. I battle all the time with this idea of what if. It's, it's not a very good thing. And any of you that struggle with it, we should almost start a support group for it <laughs> here at our church. And Yet. There's always a yet. And yet, sometimes, as we're gonna to see today, the Bible says that it's not a bad exercise to ask what if. Did you know that? It's not a bad exercise to ask every now and then, what if? In other words, there's a healthy side to the what-if line of questioning questioning, it can actually lead some to some resolve. It can lead to some conviction. It can actually cement what one believes and why by playing the what-if game. And so for us what-if experts, this is going to be a fun day for us. For the rest of you, hang in there. You're going to like this as well. Let me show you what I mean this Easter season about the power of asking what-if. Uh, this, the text I've chosen for us this year, I've used it in previous years, too, because it's one of the few texts outside of the Gospels that directly talks about the resurrection. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. Uh, Paul, the apostle, is speaking, and he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and he plays this what-if game. And, and it's wild what he does. It's almost sacrilegious, if you were to read it outside of, out of context. Look at what he says. Let's read this together. Follow along with me, you'll catch on really quickly. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But what if there's no resurrection of the dead? Then not even Christ has been raised. And what if Christ has not been raised? Then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For what if the dead are not raised? Not even Christ then has been raised. And what if Christ has not been raised? Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. I don't know about you folks, but I count a lot of ifs here. There's at least four implied what ifs, and then three or four other ifs thrown in for good measure. So if there was ever a passage that loved this what if game. This is the passage for us. And obviously, Paul the Apostle, let's cement this, who is one of the most sold out radical followers of Jesus that there ever was, is asking, what if Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, never truly occurred? He's asking, what if all of this is a sham? Don't miss this. He's using the what if equation that we use so much in our lives negatively to worry. He's using it as a positive, as an actual apologetic, a defense of the faith, a defense of the gospel. Because he then answers his own fictitious question here with a few responses, a few answers to the what if Jesus never rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. And I'm going to warn you right now that the answers that he gives are hard-hitting, they are biting, they pull no punches, and yet they show us the utter importance of why we must celebrate Easter each moment of each day. Three things that Paul the Apostle says here, three things he concludes would result if Jesus was not resurrected from the grave. And the first implication, if Jesus was not resurrected, you're gonna like this, is that you need to close your Bible. That's the first implication. You need to close your Bible. So I want you to look with me at how Paul the Apostle says this in black and white. He couldn't be more clear. Look at verse 15. He says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because, you see, we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So dial into what he's saying here. Paul is saying that he himself, as well as many other leaders in the first church back 2,000 years ago, guys like Peter and John, the 12 disciples, and many others living at that time, that they either witnessed the complete death of Jesus and then the full resurrection of Jesus, or at the very least they saw Jesus walking around after he had been killed and put in a grave, and that these same ones who were witnesses to this death and resurrection then wrote about it in numerous historical documents that were floating around even at the time that Paul is talking about all of this and have survived obviously to today in what we call the New Testament that's contained in the Bible. And so Paul is saying, we were witnesses to Jesus rising from the dead. We wrote about it. It's in this book that will become the very word of God. We aren't misrepresenting this. And just so we're clear about what they wrote, just look at a few sampling passages here. First Corinthians 15, Paul the Apostle says, For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, who was the Apostle Peter, then to the twelve, the twelve disciples. He then appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive today. You can talk to them, though some of them have died. Then he appeared to James, And then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. (laughs) John would say it more poetically. John would say it this way, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that's poetic for Jesus. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life that was with the Father and now made manifest to us that we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Peter, who was always very pithy, would just say it this way. Hey, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So add it all up, folks, But what Paul is saying here in our Easter passage is that from multiple credible resources written and recorded in history, even living at the time that Paul was making the argument here, there was eyewitness testimony to this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the only options available other than believing this is to say they were lying or deceived or just plain nuts. That's the what-if game Paul is playing. He's saying that they would be false witnesses, misrepresenting God. Or as Eugene Peterson would say in his paraphrase of this passage, it would all be smoke and mirrors if Jesus had actually not risen from the dead. And that's the point, that if Jesus really didn't rise, and so everything that's recorded in this book about him rising really isn't true. Now watch this then just close the book. Because you see, the atheists then are right. Dawkins and Hitchens, they are right. Historically, Bertrand Russell and Stephen Hawking are right that this is just a bunch of fairy tales in this book. They really didn't happen. It's all made up. It's about as real as the Greek system of gods with Zeus and Hermes that you read about in the Odyssey. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then just shut the book and stop believing all the stuff it says because it's built upon a foundation of sand. You see, as Lewis would say, the resurrection is the grandest miracle, raising somebody from the dead like God's son, of which everything else flows. And so if you knock out that stilt, there is no book to read. But, and this is the whole point of the if -if exercise, If, conversely, by some chance, Jesus did rise from the dead, then you might just have a game changer on your hands. For maybe then this book has something to say that is life-altering and soul-enhancing in such a way that could forever change the trajectory of your very life. I've been a Christian now for just about 40 years. As many people know, I wasn't raised in church or any Christian home or anything like that, and uh, became a Christian in very late high school just going into college. And, and I can remember my very first Bible study that I decided to lead when I was in college, that would be kind of a precursor for me to becoming a pastor. I was on this dorm floor in my freshman year of college, and it was a very secular college. I mean, you know, very, very few Christians, early 1980s. And, uh, and, and, and I didn't know anything about the Bible. I mean, I I barely knew who wrote what and, and, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, but I really wanted to study this book. So I had a cool factor to me back then. It's gone now, but I had this cool factor back then. And so I found a couple of, uh, you know, uh, likewise jocks on my dorm floor, and one of them was a lapsed Catholic, and the other one was a lapsed Lutheran, and the third one was a lapsed I don't know what, something, uh, but they're all lapsed. And here I am, very excited about God. I just found him for a few months now. And so I got him together and said, let's study the Bible. And they said yes. And, and, and so we would meet in the dorm room and study the Bible. It was like the blind leading the blind, mind you, because I didn't know anything. But we'd just open it, and I'd read it and say, what do you guys think this says? And God was in all of that. I'll never forget one of the guys, the... Uh, the, the Catholic guy, he really was funny. He he was a football player, a big guy, had a great sense of humor. And uh, every time I'd walk in the room, every time, I'd say, okay guys, it's time to study the Bible, and he'd reach back, he'd be laying on his bed, and he'd, he'd pull his Bible out, and he'd always do this. You know, it was kind of symbolizing blowing the dust off of his Bible. He thought that was so funny, as if somehow it hasn't been used. In, in, in weeks or months, even though we studied it last month. And he'd say, okay, I'm ready to study the Bible. And he'd open up his Bible, and we'd start reading it together. He thought that was funny, that he had to blow the dust off it because it was seemingly closed. You know what I remember about that event? I just remember him opening it and, and saying, okay, let's see what it has to say. And the reason that my friend Scott was op- or open to opening the Bible uh, was because he did believe that this resurrection thing had some merit, that, 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 that maybe, just maybe, Jesus rose from the dead and that this book should not remain closed. First thing we learn, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, is you might as well close the Bible, but if conversely you're at all open to the fact that he did, as we'll see, you might want to keep this book open. That's the first implication of our what-if experiment Now, as we continue with the Bible's own what-if journey here, what if Jesus was not resurrected from the grave, there is a second implication of this, and I'll warn you again, it's likewise rather biting, (laughs) but some of you are going to love this, and that is that if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then you and I should stop talking. We should stop talking. Some of you right now at home are saying amen. I'm glad I can't hear you say that. <laughs> we should stop talking. And, and again, it, it's right here in the text. Look at verse 14. Paul the Apostle says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, which is simply talking about the gospel, is in vain. That word vain in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in literally means empty, hollow, and without substance. Substance. Here's a great illustration. It's like a balloon. And, and you know, have you ever blown up a balloon for a, a little kid? You know, you take this little cheap piece of rubber and you blow it all up and it becomes this big, beautiful red or blue or green thing. And a kid just goes nuts. Their eyes get wide and they think it's so cool. And yet, as an adult, you go, well, it's actually just a cheap piece of rubber with a bunch of empty air in it. <laughs> if there is no resurrection, then our talking is like a balloon it's got a lot of air in it, but it's just cheap. It doesn't really mean much. If there is no resurrection, what Paul is saying, then we might as well just shut up and stop talking to those around us because it's not very meaningful. And the question that I want to wrestle with just for a few minutes right now is why would this be so? I want you to think about this with me. Why Is the resurrection so important? Because some people could say at this point, well, Jamie... I mean, there's lots of religious people that don't believe in a resurrection like other religions. There's lots of religious people that don't believe in a resurrection. They're just spiritual by nature. And so the resurrection is just kind of one part of religion as we know it today. And so, you know, you take that out, why should we stop talking completely about God? What's the logic behind that? (laughs) That's a great question to ask. And here's the logic according to the Bible and why this is so potent and important. As almost all of us know, Jesus came to this earth. Nobody doubts that. Do we all understand that? The History Channel understands that. Skeptics understand that. Almost everybody with any academic uh, weight believes in a, in a historical Jesus. And when Jesus came, here's where it gets dicey. He made a bunch of claims that make people kind of uneasy. Here are the things that he claimed in a nutshell. He claimed to be God in the flesh. Theologians call it the incarnation. John 8, verse 58, Jesus says, before Abraham even existed, Abraham existed 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, before Abraham even existed, I am, I exist. So he claimed eternal existence. He claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to atone and forgive our sins. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 6, uh, Jesus says the Son of Man has authority to forgive people of their sins. In Luke 19, 10, he says, I came to seek and save all the lost. So who says things like that? That was Jesus' claim. He claimed to come to bring us back to God. He claimed to be the only pathway to God, John fourteen six, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then he claimed to be the one to grant eternal life. John 3, 16, most of you know this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is called the gospel. It's called the good news. And it's the entire message of Jesus. It's what he claimed, and that is to simply come to bring you and me back to God to forgive us of our sin that separates us from him, to offer us life here and now in him, and then for all of eternity, if you place your trust and faith in him and follow him and his ways of love and truth. That's the gospel, now don't miss this, built upon the claims of Jesus as recorded in the Bible, very personal claims that have everything to do with each one of us on planet Earth. Now, here's where it gets rich. Each and every one of these claims of Jesus, him being from God to atoning for sin, to being the pathway to God, to being the only one to grant eternal life, is predicated on Jesus doing what he said he would do. In other words, we all know that a claim, any claim, is only as good as proving the things that you're claiming are true, right? So here's a Great example, I'm five foot six, about 185 pounds, I'm 56 years old. If I said to you right now, and I brought out 500 pounds of weights here right now and said I can deadlift 500 pounds, most of you, rightly so, would not believe it. You would say there's no way that your body at your age and your muscular features, or lack thereof, can deadlift 500 pounds. However, the only way we would find out is for me to try to prove it, right? And if I was to deadlift 500 pounds, it would prove me right. But if I couldn't, it would prove me wrong. We do stuff like this all the time in our world. If you make a claim, you got to be able to prove it's true. So with this understanding, here is the proof that Jesus offered that his claims are and were true. You ready for this? It's going to blow you away. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. This is why the resurrection is so important. Jesus himself is speaking and he said this. The son of man, meaning himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and here it is, and be killed and on the third day be raised. Have you ever wondered why we celebrate what we're doing this time of year with Good Friday when Jesus was killed and then Easter when he was risen from the dead, It's because that's the claim he made as proof of who he is and his claims being true. They were all pinned on a resurrection. They were all pinned on his resurrection as proof that God was and is truly in him and with him. This would prove his claims valid. They would show his victory over death. And so maybe now you can see Why Paul's logic is so strong. If Jesus was not raised, now it will make sense to you, then our preaching, this all talk about the gospel, is in vain. Picture that balloon. It's empty. It's hollow. It's cheap. It's not very meaningful. If Jesus was not resurrected from the grave, then all Christians should just shut up. Stop talking so big about knowing God and eternal life and victory over sin and all the things that we talk about. And though there are some that would love for us to stop talking about all those things because it bothers them, as we're going to see in just a second, it's not going to happen because we're just playing a game here. We're playing a what-if game in order to see just how important this resurrection is so if the resurrection did not happen we might as well just shut this book and read some jack higgins novel <laughs> if the resurrection didn't happen we might as well just stop talking because we wouldn't have much to say and then before we end on a very positive note notice to me a third and final implication of a no resurrection scenario. And this is the crux of it all. And this is going to make some of you laugh and smile, and it should, because it's so insane, but it's so real. And that is that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you should just become a hedonist. Just become a hedonist. And some of you are saying, what's a hedonist? A hedonist is somebody who simply lives for the love of pleasure, I know it's hard to picture somebody in America living just for the love of pleasure, but just go with me for it, with me for it a second. It just means somebody who lives for the next thing, and the next vacation, the next spot of money, the next meal. It just lives to, to scintillate their senses. A hedonist, it's just somebody who lives for pleasure. And and here's the logic behind this one. It's very revealing, and that is that Paul is saying that if there is no resurrection then all we have is the here and now. You have no eternal life. And if all we have is the here and now, then you just might as well enjoy it because you don't have a lot of hope and just become a hedonist in your life. I want you to look with me at how he says this. We're gonna go to the scripture slide now, guys. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. Look at what he says. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Focus on that last phrase there because it says it all. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if Jesus wasn't raised, which means there is no heaven there's no forgiveness of sins because, again, all of his claims are now debunked, which means all we really have is the here and now. If that's all you have, then we're of most people to be pitied because we're claiming to do all the things that we do because someday we're going to get a heavenly reward. Someday it's all going to be worth it. Someday we're going to have a much better life than this. But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then this is all there is. And again, if that's the case, then I think Howard Stern is right. (laughs) I think Mick Jagger is right. I I think all the modern-day hedonists are right. I actually had a a wonderful, very popular Christian friend of mine, I mean, he's written tons of books and very, very bright and and, and a wonderful, wonderful man of God said to me a while back, he said, you know, if I wasn't a Christian, if I didn't believe all the things I believe, I, I would just go out and just try to find any jolt of pleasure I could, I would would become a hedonist. Because in his mind, and he's thinking biblically, it's either Jesus, and a life of following him, and a life of sacrifice, and a life of not just living for now, but for eternity, and that puts restraints on us, and it gives us a morality, and and an ethical system, and an other-centeredness. We now live for God and others, not just ourselves. It's either that, or it's hedonism. And that's the point Paul is making here. And here's what's so cool about that once you understand this, and that is that we shouldn't get mad at the hedonism around us. Some of us just get all mad at the way culture is right now, you know, and they shouldn't be doing that. Don't get mad at them. They're just actually living a very consistent worldview. They're just living in light of the things that they believe, meaning they don't believe in this Jesus stuff, this resurrection. They don't believe in eternal life. They have a vague spirituality, but I'm not even sure they they know what that means. And so they're just living for the here and now and just living for the next jolt of pleasure. Don't get mad at the hedonism. Get mad at the the, the lack of worldview that they might have. Get mad at the fact that we haven't done a good enough job presenting, as Paul does here, the cogency of, of the resurrection, the cogency of the Christian worldview, how it makes sense that all of us are fallen and that all of us have a desperate need in our souls. We feel it to connect with God, but the reason you can't is because our sin blocks us, and that that's why Jesus came, to forgive us of our sin so that we might know God. But in order to do that, you need to believe in him. You need to trust in him. You need to accept him as Lord and Savior. Otherwise, It's either that or just live for yourself. This is life without the resurrection. What if Jesus never rose from the dead? (laughs) Let's summarize. Close your Bible. Stop talking. Become a hedonist. That's where Paul leads us in, in, in this what if game. These are the implications of life without a resurrection. And yet... Again, I said it earlier, there's always a yet in life. In not leaving us with this fictitious scenario, because that would be a real downer for Easter, I love how Paul wraps up this section in the Bible. Look at the last verse here, once again, verse 20. With this, we're gonna be done. Look at what he says. He says, but, if ever a but was important, it's important now, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died or fallen asleep. Notice two things there. I put it in yellow. He says, but in fact. In other words, it's a fact, at least in his mind and in many of our minds. As one great old-time Bible commentator, Charles Hodge, put it, he says, as the matter actually stands, so the what-if game is now over. We're not playing it anymore. We're now gonna look at reality and what has really happened. Christ has been raised from the dead. He's been raised. He's alive. And so watch this. Now that the what-if game is over and the opposite is actually true, Jesus has actually risen from the dead, the implications that we've been talking about all along for the last 30 minutes are now reversed. Because here's now what the implications become. And that is that if you believe Christ has risen from the dead, you need to regularly open your Bible. You need to start talking, because eternity depends on this. And you need to become a faithful follower, not just somebody who lives for here and now. And that's the message of Easter Sunday. That Jesus rose from the dead, and he says, now immerse yourself in my truth. Get talking and let others know that I'm alive and that I've come for them as well. And you, yourself, become a lifelong follower of me. Final story. And with this, we'll pray and be done. As I mentioned earlier, I became a Christian 40 years ago. My little brother, Pete, who's just a, younger, or just a year younger than me, became a Christian about 25 years ago. And in the only way that God could, it was a humorous thing in in many ways. I had been after him for 15 years since I became a Christian because neither of us were raised in a very religious home and he wanted nothing to do, you know, with spirituality or anything. As you said, a wacko brother, you know, was always after him about God. And he, in 1995, moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, I used to make fun of Grand Rapids. I used to say, you know, it was just a bunch of holy rollers and all these, you know, Dust Reformed religious people, and, you know, I don't make fun of them anymore because when my brother moved there, everybody he ran into had some sort of religion or spirituality. And so he started to show some interest. Plus, he had just had his first child, and uh, he, he was interested in spiritual things. So I drove to Detroit, and I researched it, and I took him to the, to the best, biggest, most happening church in, in Grand Rapids, and it was an absolute train wreck. <laughs> train wreck. This church had gotten a little bit too big for their britches and, and, and tried to run things really tight, but they really didn't know how to reach the next generation, my brother's generation. And so, you know, we, we got in there and we, we brought the kid in and, and the nursery was a shambles. And my, my brother looked at me and said, I'm putting my kid in that nursery. And so we said, well, we can go into the worship service. And they actually stopped us from coming into the worship service, and said, we don't allow children in the worship service. Well, that didn't go well with my brother. So they, they put us be, behind in this section, behind this plexiglass, you know, and said, you can watch the service from there. Well, by then my, my brother was completely sullied all of this. We got in the parking lot, and I said, well, I can find you another church. And he said, I'll, I'll handle it from here, thank you. And I went back to Detroit with my tail between my legs. About six months later, he and I were talking on the phone, and I said, so how's the, the church thing going? He said, I found one. He said, it's just a little church right down the road from me, just a few hundred people, and, uh, and yet they, they seem to have their head on straight, and they, they love me and, and my family, and, and it's going well. By the way, this little church would eventually become a huge church back then. It was a very small church. And I said, well, how, how's the search going? And I'll never forget what he said to me next. It has everything to do with Easter. He said, Jamie, did you know, and then he mentioned one of our friends from way back, that so-and-so doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Just kind of out of nowhere. He asked that, You know, did you know so-and-so do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And I said, well, yeah, I, I, I did know that. I said, the bigger question is, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And he said to me, well, after investigating this, I, I believe I do. I knew at that point that my brother's life was going to change. That after a, an honest look at what the Bible says, and, and putting his heart and mind into it, that, that if he was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, that things were going to start to flow from there, spiritual sparks could not help but start to fly. And what I've seen in my brother over the last 25 years is exactly what we've talked about today. My, my brother, who has a very different temperament from me, he'll never be a preacher or anything like that, the first thing he started to do is he started to open his Bible. Because you see, Jesus rose from the dead. So Let's open this book and find out more. And he started reading a bunch of other books on Christianity and, and starting to cement his faith, all because Jesus rose from the dead. And then he started to talk. Again, he's not like me. He's much more nice than me and all these things my wife tells me. And he, he's just a wonderful guy. He started to get involved in the children's ministry at his church, and he, and he started to, to teach and tell the story time to the kids at, at his church. He started talking to other people uh, about this Jesus and again, he's such a non-threatening personality. It's was just a wonderful thing to see him do that. And then, as you can imagine, over the years, he's become a faithful follower of Jesus, all because of this resurrection. Here's my point, point. with this, we're done. Could it be that some of you who came in with us here today never really thought how powerful a resurrection could be in your life? Maybe today is the day where you ask yourself, do I really believe this? Do I really believe that Jesus, we know he came, but do I really believe the claims that he made to be God come in the flesh, to be the forgiver of my sin, to be the only way to the Father, to be the one to give me eternal life? Do we believe those claims? And if we do, do we believe it's because he really did rise from the dead? If you don't believe that, then close your Bible. <laughs> Stop talking. And uh, just get on with your life. But if you were at all open to that, like my brother was 25 years ago, like I was 40 years ago, then maybe it's time to open your Bible. Maybe it's time to start talking a bit more, asking questions, interacting. Maybe it's time to become a follower of him. Some of you are ready to do that today. As C.S. Lewis once said, God is surprising you with joy right now in this moment, And so what I'd love to do before our pastor comes up to close this is I would love to pray with you right now that you might receive Christ, cement your faith in him and his resurrection, and start your journey today. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, we live in very tenuous times right now, to say the least. People are shut in. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of unknown, Lord. But at the same time, we also see you doing a lot of things that we didn't see coming. Many churches across America today are doubling their attendance as people are sick of watching Hulu and Netflix and binge-watching shows and say, might as well watch church. Lord, there might be some even here today who joined us that came here just because they wanted to observe Easter. And they realized that Easter is much more than an observance. It's an interaction with a risen Savior who has a name, Jesus who rose from the dead, and that, 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 that resurrection changes everything. That resurrection means we open our Bibles. It means we start talking and interacting. It means that we can become a faithful follower of you and not just live for ourselves. And so, Lord, there are some who are with us here today that are ready to pray to receive you. And right where they sit, they pray this. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son. Thank you that he died for my sins. Thank you that he rose on the third day, the day we're celebrating right now. I receive him as my Lord and as my Savior. I invite him to become the leader of my life, the one who I can now follow for the rest of my life. And Lord, I believe that you rose from the dead. I will now open your book. I will start talking, and I will become a faithful follower. Thank you that you received me into your fold. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name name. Amen.